Lopate at large. I'm Lundit Lopate, and we're having some technical difficulties, but we're going to get through this show today because it's a really fascinating show. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. famously said that the First Amendment does not protect the person who falsely cries fire in a crowded theater. Turo College Law Professor Thane Rosenbaum goes beyond this classic example, arguing that certain limits on free speech are not only constitutional and in line with previous case law, but are essential for the maintenance of civil society and personal dignity. His new book, Saving Free Speech from Itself, is published by Fig Tree Books, and I'm very pleased that it brings Thane Rosenbaum to our show now. Hello. Leonard, it's always wonderful hearing your voice and being on your show. Thank you. Well, it's great having you, and this is a fascinating topic. Why is uh, the First Amendment, which protects free speech, the most popular amendment for most Americans? It's a very good question. It's actually the one amendment in the Constitution that both liberals and conservatives agree on. Uh, The Supreme Court is often unanimous when it comes to First Amendment cases dealing with free speech. But only Um, portions of it. Leonard, say that again. Are you hearing me? A little better. Say that again one more time. Uh, Only portions. Do Americans care as much about all the parts of the First Amendment, which include religion, freedom of the press, and the right to assemble? Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting point. The the Founding Fathers didn't even care about speech in the beginning. That was not their priority. Look, we were all traumatized after uh, the Revolutionary War by the actions of King George III. So all of the amendments are a way of responding to him. They're all in defiance to this is not how we're going. We're never going to be dealing with another King George III. So initially, the First Amendment really focused on freedom of the press, religion, and assembly. Speech was sort of an afterthought. Uh, It was a number of state constitutions, including New York, that pressured uh, Hamilton and Madison uh, to include speech. Uh, You can see why that its focus was on the press, because remember, we were traumatized by a king that saw sedition in every single corner uh, and insisted that religion was not free, but the Church of England was the main religion, uh, and, uh, and he couldn't be criticized. And so the thought was, and the possibility of assembly for protest purposes without being arrested was also important. Speech then became part of it. But as you point out, Leonard, it became the one piece of the First Amendment that everyone recognizes as most important and most popular. Is the classic exemption, falsely shouting fire in a theater, prohibited because it might cause a panic? Yes, because in fact, <laughs> you could. there's no law against shouting fire in an empty theater, right? Because <laughs> you'd be a lunatic, but you don't go to jail for that. Yes. I mean, the concept is that the state and government has a responsibility for public safety and the general welfare. So they started creating some kinds of exceptions to the general rule that were being carved out uh, all throughout. And now there are more there are more so in the last century, the 20th century. Uh, But there were very few free speech cases that went to the Supreme Court all throughout the 19th century. Uh, it just it functioned as it functioned. It wasn't really until around the 20th century, and certainly after uh, the, ni- the social upheavals of the 1960s, that uh, free speech changed entirely about how permissive uh, we were when it came to speech 
and how uh, how uh, uh, in you know how tolerant we were of almost anything that came out of the mouth of any lunatic. Well, we didn't. Uh, nobody uh, put Father Coughlin in jail for saying things that were anti-Semitic and perhaps supportive of Hitler. But what about hate speech now and cyberbullying? Can't they also cause panic? Yeah, they do. Look, you're right about Father Coughlin, but remember, it was only a few decades later that the Nazis, neo-Nazis, marched on a hamlet uh, of hol- filled with Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois, and the Supreme Court didn't even really need to hear that one. Only the Seventh Circuit uh, gave the right, First Amendment right, to the neo-Nazis again to march on the village green of a small town that happened to have the largest percentage of um, of Holocaust survivors in the country. So the First Amendment has been used to protect all of these kinds of uh, uh, levels of speech. But you see, the, the issue with uh, crowding, uh, shouting fire in a theater, as you correctly point out, is we don't want to have people trampled upon. Uh, but the idea that Father Conflin, he was, it, it, I would argue that he was getting people to trample upon each other. But the federal government's position was, well, he has an idea, and he's sharing his idea in a marketplace of ideas, and his idea is that he hates Jews. And, for instance, the neo-Nazis, well, you may not like them, but surely they have the right to, to speak, and we can't deny them a permit to march on the village green. Those situations where the speech is being couched as an idea, shouting fire in a theater is not an idea, and that's the reason, in addition to public safety, why it's so much more easily regulated. But is, wasn't marching an implied threat? Was the intent of the Nazis who marched Skokie to express an idea or to threaten and intimidate? Leonard, you have me at hello. Yeah, I mean, to me, I remember that case when I was a young man. It's, it seemed bananas. Um, what we've allowed to do, which is something I think the founding fathers would be shocked by, is to dress up, uh, legitimize acts of violence. Burning a cross on an African-American's lawn is legal? Marching Nazis uh-huh. in, ho- in front of Holocaust survivors, legal? I would even say uh, burning an American flag in front of a family whose son was killed at war, legal? Absolutely all it is. protected Yes, all protected under the First Amendment, all considered political speech without regard to the effect on the listener, without regard to the intention to cause harm to the listener. Uh, And as you would say, marching Nazis is an act of violence. Uh, The the marchers in Charlottesville who were chanting, uh, Jews will not replace us, if you happen to have been there that day and evening, you would have felt threatened. And therefore, the question is, why should the First Amendment be in a position that allows for threat uh, and incitement? Now, the truth is, threats and incitement are carved out. They are prescription. Uh, they're not oftentimes used. For instance, your point is, well, then why was the Nazis able to do that if, in fact, the incitement to violence is not uh, permissible. Well, the, very legalistically, the position there has to be imminent incitement to violence, right? So that you can't make a speech and say, let's all go and kill Jews, 
and then, you know, go home and pretend that you have a First Amendment right to say that. If people are acting on what you just said, you don't have a First Amendment right for that. But the, the march itself is usually understood as an act of expression, uh, as if it purports to have an idea and not as acts of violence which is what you're pointing out and which my book clearly argues. Now, the ACLU, which most people consider to be a liberal organization, defended the, the, uh, the Nazis in Skokie and also the white supremacists and uh, alt-right agitators in Charlottesville. Um, are right-wing groups weaponizing free speech, forcing organizations like the ACLU who champion the rights of the oppressed into defending groups that are determined to oppress? One of the great ironies, Leonard, uh, not only did the ACLU represent the neo-Nazis in 1977 at Skokie, but they represented them with Jewish lawyers. Uh, Jewish lawyers were representing neo-Nazis 30 years after the liberation of, of Auschwitz. It was just a, twisted, uh, an organization dedicated to equality and rights uh, somehow believed that the rights of the neo-Nazis to threaten Holocaust survivors superseded the rights of the Holocaust survivors to live their life in peace and tranquility and to respect their citizenship as Americans and equality. Uh, the interesting thing, yes, the interesting thing is that uh, fascists and hateful groups, uh, when they come to the ACLU, generally get top-notch pro bono representation from lawyers who but themselves are usually minority. But what happened in Charlottesville, Leonard, is very interesting because, yes, the town of Charlottesville attempted to not give a permit to the marchers. They wanted to give them a permit somewhere else further away from the statue of Robert E. Lee. Uh, the, the court, the federal court, the court, federal court said no. Uh, under the First Amendment, these people have a right uh, and you cannot deny them a permit, and you can't force them to use the permit in a different location. This was represent; they were represented by the ACLU. But after this happened, Leonard, what was interesting is 200 employees, 200 lawyers with the ACLU drafted a letter to the executive director and said, "We have to stop this. This is just crazy. Why, of for the love of God, are we in a position?" of representing people who, as you would point out, would deny all liberties to everyone and would have, it would have governance that would do harm to minorities and marginalized groups. And so the donors, by the way, also this happened in Skokie, a number of donors, especially Jewish donors, uh, started to cancel their donations to the ACLU. But what happened with Charlottesville is very different. The lawyers and the, tr and the board members themselves started to reconsider why this is their mission. Is it just coincidental that one of the protesters in Charlottesville deliberately drove a car into a crowd of peaceful protesters, which resulted in a woman being killed? And you know, I would say, I would, Leonard, I would say it goes back to the point you made five or ten minutes ago, which is to say, <clears throat> aren't these marches themselves acts of violence do they not and don't do they not prime the public for incitement uh, would there be a car driving into people had there not been people 
uh, carrying tiki torches and wearing military fatigue outfits, chanting Jews will not replace us? No. Uh, clearly, what was that act of violence was inspired by the march itself. And that's why one of the reasons I wrote this book, because as Americans, we are out of our minds when it comes to the First Amendment. We are an outlier on the issue of free speech. No Western democracy throughout Europe would tolerate any of the incidents that you and I just discussed. If the neo-Nazis want to march in Austria or France or in, uh, in Germany, we march, you, we march you to jail. That's where you get to march. You go straight to jail. Uh, you know, we don't, and by the way, Leonard, Western democracies that recognize principles of free speech, also nations that arose out of the cradle of the Enlightenment, they all read the same philosophers as we did, Locke, Kant, Rousseau. They don't allow free speech to extend to, as you would say, the weaponization of words. They simply don't. And the question I ask in the book is, what makes us so different? Why do we grant these rights and always favor the bullies, the cyber bullies, the hateful groups, the murderous groups, uh, by, by dressing them up, giving them a makeover, pretending that they actually have an idea in their march, again, you know, you want to write an op-ed, that's fine. Marching on a, in, a, in, a, in, in, in uniform on a small community is, in, is treated as speech, but having the good manners of how to speak is something that we should be reconsidering, and that's something that is, is, is novel, I can assure you the vast majority of law professors in this country and federal judges will be opposed to everything I'm saying in this book because they have a very different understanding of what free speech means. I'm speaking with Thane Rosenbaum about his book, Saving Free Speech from Itself. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. How could tort law take into consideration recent neuroscientific evidence that concerns the lasting impact of harassment and threats on the human brain? Very good point, Leonard. Uh, I have several chapters in the book about the neuroscience of hate. Um, being uh, exposed to persistent uh, degradation, humiliation, uh, incitement, threat, intimidation, through words, through signage, right? Cowheads go home, right? If you're a Muslim, uh, Jews get out, right? That's, uh, that's signage. That's also considered free speech. Per the persistent exposure to such uh, uh, gestures, such actions, uh, lead not just to mental and emotional uh, 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 poor health, but to physical poor health, that it leads to uh, inflammation that shortens lives and leads to disease. So that what we've been told is children, sticks and stones can break my bones, that names cannot hurt me. Nonsense. It was always nonsense. We always knew. Children know it's yeah. nonsense. But we, ha we have a First Amendment, Leonard, that takes its guiding cue from a nursery rhyme. So yes, the, the neuroscience is now unmistakable. Words, indignity, uh, uh, persistent threats, uh, the, the experience of truly being afraid to go outside of your house 
because you are not going to be treated with the mutual respect of other citizens leads to sickness. Now, we've always offered, as you would say, tort remedies. You could always sue someone for the intentional infliction of emotional distress. The problem, Leonard, is that people who go to law school learn, we never grant them relief. Never. It's hardly, forget in hate speech, in any capacity, <clears throat> unless it's accompanied by a physical blow, a material injury to the body, <clears throat> we usually treat the intentional infliction of emotional distress as an add-on to the primary damages of bodily harm. We almost never uh, grant it just for the emotional distress itself. So, yes, our, our civil court judges, we can start an entirely new precedent, given the neuroscience and the evidence, the medical evidence that we now have, to do what you just said, that we should permit and should, we should encourage people to bring more civil lawsuits for these kinds of injuries, both to <clears throat> body and mind, that originate from hate uh, and for the intentional purpose to cause harm to a, a marginalized group or to an individual, and we should grant civil remedies to the victims of these to, the, to these torts. So, beside the prohibition on falsely cry, crying fire in a crowded theater, what other speech is legally not protected by the courts? Well, that's the thing I talk, talk about in the book, that we're really a bunch of hypocrites because we say we mean free speech, but in many ways we don't. For instance, there's all sorts of things that we don't permit free speech for. I don't have a right, speaking of courtrooms, I don't have a right in the middle of a courtroom to get up and make a speech, even if I'm the defendant or the plaintiff. You know what's going to happen. The judge is going to pound his or her gavel and, and, have, and have me removed from the courtroom. Students just can't get up in a classroom and start, you know, preaching to the students. Uh, you know, they don't have a free speech right, even in a university, to tell a faculty member, I don't want to read this. I want to read something else. I have a free speech right to be able to do what I want. So there's, free speech has been limited anyway by certain rules um, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to function as a society. Now, outside the First Amendment, uh, remember, the First Amendment only applies to the government regulation of speech, which means that when two people are having an argument on the street, Leonard, and someone says to the other, don't tell me to shut up, I have a right to free speech, we should all know that that is not what the First Amendment is for. The First Amendment says the government shall not abridge speech. If two friends want to yell at each other and insult each other, neither of them have a free speech right to do it. They can do it, but they're probably going to end their friendship. But they can't do it because the federal government gave them a right to do it. But, yeah, but they won't also, wind up in jail. That's right. As long, they won't wind up in jail. They're just going to. They're just going to. Well, as unless we would say, them, overstep. The, unless yeah, one of them you went too does far. physical violence. Right. They, right. Right. And, and right. If it leads to essentially physical violence, but in that situation, again, we've had you know Supreme Court cases that we're not using. For instance. Chaplinsky versus the United States. And in that case, the court was very clear, a, a doctrine not just of pro prescribed categories of libel and defamation um, and obscenity, but also fighting words, words that have truly no ideas behind it, 
They don't lead to what they call a step to the truth. They don't provide better decision-making or better representative democracy. Uh, it's simply there to cause harm to another individual and also to in, 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 propel them to retaliate with their own strife. And so we've always had this category called fighting words, meaning that the, the government can step in and you are not protected if the words you're choosing to use are intended to, call, to be fighting words, to harm another human being, and the words themselves are valueless in themselves. They have one purpose and one purpose only, to cause harm. But even outside the operation of the First Amendment, we don't really mean we allow free speech because we, we constantly, as a society, cancel people, we disinvite them from universities. Where's the free speech there? Uh, why are we disinviting speakers on campus if this is a nation that is purportedly obsessed with free speech? Um, why, why is it uh, that Colin Kaepernick, uh, uh, you know, is not playing in the NFL? Why are people saying that he has a free speech right? Now, the truth is he doesn't, because the federal government is not the entity that's stopping him from protesting, it's the owners of the NFL. And while you're on the job, in all jobs, your employer can insist how you present yourself. And the NFL owners said they don't want you kneeling, they want you standing. So that's why when people say, well, why doesn't Colin Kaepernick have a First Amendment right to do so? He doesn't have a First Amendment right because the team has him under contract. If he wants to do it outside the scope of the game, he can, but not while he's wearing his 49er uniform. Now, if the state of Texas, Leonard, passed a law that said at all public events uh, where the, the public gathers together and there's the playing of the national anthem, all citizens must stand, that is a First Amendment violation. Why? Yeah. Because in that instance, it's the government that's that's enforcing a, a rule that is denying someone their free speech. Um, so in the not case of the, Colin Kaepernick, he, he is simply uh, going against company rules. It's the equivalent of me uh, publishing an article that criticizes my employer uh, and then uh, n assuming that I'm not going to be fired as a result. That's right. That's right. But, but it makes you realize, right, so this doesn't deal with the First Amendment, but if we really all believe in first free speech, if we are so absolutist in our mindset, if we're so determined that free speech defines what it means to be an American, why even outside the context of government uh, regulation, why are we not more willing to let people have their free speech? Roseanne Barr's television show uh, was taken away from her because of a tweet that was admittedly stupid and racist. But no one said to her, no one said to the network, you know, she does have a right to free speech. Uh, there's an engineer who worked for Google. His name is James Damore. He wrote an internal memo to uh, the entire uh, engineers, software engineers, uh, speculating in why it is that women don't rise to higher levels in corporate governance. Uh, he was fired two days later uh, uh, because the, the memo was considered misogynistic and harmful. Uh, no one said at that point, well, you know, he's a 
it, this is a uh, Google's made up of a bunch of PhDs. They all have different ideas. Why not let them share those ideas? So there are many examples, both uh, from a uh, on a university setting for sure, even in public universities. And remember, a public university is a government university, so it must comply with the with the First Amendment. But we're seeing time and time again, even a public university. Disfavored speakers are denied access on campus, and people are being shouted down. Outside of universities, in the workforce, uh, what was it? <clears throat> a few years ago, there was an owner for the Los Angeles Clippers. His mistress secretly taped a, a conversation they had in which he used the N-word. And when she leaked it, the NBA stepped in and took away his team. That's why it's the team is changed hair. Nobody, nobody said, look, he was having an argument with a mistress. He didn't make a public statement. People say all kinds of horrible things. Is this really what it means to have free speech? As repugnant as the speech was? So again, we're hypocrites when we claim free speech at all costs because we don't even allow it among ourselves. Uh, we'll, we'll cover this a bit further after we take a little break, but uh, I do want to also point out, not just hypocritical but ironic, that UC Berkeley, uh, the birthplace of the free speech movement, canceled speeches by Milo Yiannopoulos uh, and Ann Coulter. So um, it's a complicated world. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. <laughs> Congress shall make no law for the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech of the press or the back with Thane Rosenbaum, who is an essayist, novelist, and law professor. Um, his uh, articles appear frequently in most of the, uh, the major publications, also on television, CNN, and the like. He serves as the legal analyst for CBS News Radio, can be seen regularly on various cable news shows at, at the 92nd Street Y. He moderates the, the talk show at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, and he, his latest book, is not a novel. It is saving free speech from itself. It is published by uh, a fig. What is it? Fig tree. Fig tree press. Hello, yeah. are you there? Yeah, fig yeah, tree press. Fig tree press. Um, so uh, let's let's talk about some other uh, areas. Why are libel and slander slander not protected under freedom of speech? Isn't one person's truth another person's slander? Yeah, the difference there is, well, first of all, let's be clear, much harder to win those cases, especially in the United States if it gets a public figure. Good luck. Uh, you, know, you know, Sullivan, the United States versus Sullivan, uh, standard is very high. Um, you can pretty much say anything to a, uh, about a public figure in print, 
and they'll never really be able to prevail in a libel or defamation case against you. Uh, with respect to just individuals who are not famous, right, uh, those cases are slightly easier to win. But again, the difference there, Leonard, is the reason that libel is unprotected isn't because it hurts your feelings or isn't because it hurts your emotions or that it causes bodily harm. It's because it injures your reputation that has material consequences so that it reinforces the idea that the legal system is only interested for if there are physical or material harm, consequences that happen that are of a physical, tangible nature, broken arms, broken uh, knees, uh, fender benders, um, damages caused to homes, businesses that were forced to close. So the libel and slander picks up on that idea that reputational harm, you know, to the extent to which you can show harm, you might have a defamation case. But that's the reason it's carved out from First Amendment protection. It's not carved out for the reasons that you and I are talking about or that I lay out in Saving Free Speech from Itself, which is the loss of dignity. Words spoken, just as, you know, again, the United States, both in the Declaration of Independence and the, and the Constitution, shockingly, if you ask the trivial, trivial question, said, how many times did the word dignity appear in the Declaration, uh, in um, the United States Decla uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? The answer, Leonard, is not once. <laughs> not one time did the Founding Fathers put the word dignity in. But human dignity is all over, repeated endlessly in the Constitution, Germany, France, England, all throughout uh, 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 Europe. Israel has their own basic law to dignity. And that's really what the problem is here, <laughs> that we don't actually have a right to dignity. Um, and maybe I, in the book I raise questions on how we could get there. But the, the, a dignitary right is not something that is owed to citizens. It ought to be. Now, I think the founding fathers believed in it. It's just not there. In a 1917 dissent, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote that speech should be judged as we judge all products in a competitive marketplace of ideas. How did that opinion become so influential, even though it was in a dissent? And, I know, and do you find I any know. problems with his reasoning? Yeah, I think it's awful. I think what that dissent, Leonard, is what set us on this path to free speech craziness. Really, uh, craziness. I, I would argue, and I have in the book, for all the people that think that Second Amendment absolutists are, are crazy because they refuse to believe in any regulation of any firearm, uh, there's no difference between the first free speech absolutists. They're the same. They're just, they're just crazy. And, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, in, the dissent, in his uh, dissent back in, around World War I, introduced this idea of the marketplace of ideas. And so that what we do is we say we don't, we don't shut down speech. We welcome more speech because the more speech leads to more ideas. And ideas compete in a marketplace, just like cars, just like sports teams, just like food products, cookies. Uh, everything is in a competitive, laissez-faire market, consumer-oriented America, 
uh, all invisible hand stuff, right? Market economies. And ideas are also in their own economy, their own marketplace. And the better ideas will defeat the bad ideas. And that was this presumption that he made, which is just flatly wrong. Uh, the marketplace of ideas is a marketplace of chaos because we let anything, any burp, any hiccup that comes out of anyone's mouth, we immediately grant it the status of an idea without any quality control. We don't do this with food. We don't do this with drugs. We, we don't do this with stocks and bonds or commodities. We have some regulation to protect consumer welfare, but not when it comes to speech. When we speech, it's like a battle royal. It's like a, 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 you know, a fight to the death. Um, and if it was a real marketplace where good ideas cancel out bad ideas, why are Nazis still around, Leonard? <laughs> Didn't they lose that war? Their idea succeeded. In, I'm sorry. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. No, no. You, 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 you I was going to bring up another point along these lines. In 2008, the ACLU defended four students at North Carolina State University who spray painted "Hang Obama" by a noose. Now that's yeah. free speech protected under the First Amendment because it's unlikely that anybody reading it is actually going to try to hang Obama. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, 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 the pr presumption there, the ACLU's presumption is that although crass, although violent in nature, although, you know, as boorish as can possibly be, that is really an idea in the way they're objecting to President Obama's policy. Now, you and I, I'm, I'm assuming I'm based, uh, based on the way you asked that question, we don't think that that's their discussion about policies. We think they're talking about something else. They're not talking about, you know, really, we really, Obamacare really bothers us. So the way we want to express that is through, a, you know, a, 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 a photograph or an image of a noose around the president. Um, that is, you know, the, 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 the federal government would say, look, the, the Secret Service has every right to examine these kids to make sure they're not seriously going to carry it out. But the mere fact that they want to express their idea in such an offensive, ugly manner, so in a manner that is not even intended to attract adherence, right? It's not like, you know, what, I, what bothers me is that we are treating, you know, uh, uh, neo-Nazis like we treat Martin Luther King. Uh, we're treating Klansmen like we're treating the Lincoln-Douglas debate. We're treating any thug that wants to cause harm as if he's Cicero, and he's not. And we should be able to make the distinctions without claiming, oh, you know, the slippery slope, if you make a decision. I'm actually very comfortable in saying that Adolf Hitler and Martin Luther King are not the same, and their free speech rights should be very different. On another front, pornography is protected by the First Amendment, but not obscenity. What's the distinction right. being made there? <laughs> you know, again, there we are. We have we carved out uh, another prescription in the Shaplinsky versus the United States libel, slander, uh, defamation, uh, and obscenity. Um, but we created this category that is unknowable, so much so that the Supreme Court used a standard that doesn't sound very legal, which says, "I know it when I see it." <laughs> so. Okay, that's how we make the decision between pornography 
I mean, the idea was that we're, we live in a free society and that their pornography would be permissible, but obscenity uh, would not be, even though we put ourselves in a position of not being able to know how, what that rule, how to really interpret that rule. And by the way, this was true of all the amendments. Just think about the First Amendment. It's such a short amendment, but it includes speech, religion, press, assembly, right? And it doesn't say very much. That's why we have, you know, 200 years of constitutional law to try to figure stuff out. That's why the Supreme Court introduced the right to privacy for Roe v. Wade and earlier cases, because those rights uh, to contraception, to marriage, to uh, 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 marriage equality, to homosexual uh, relationships did not exist in the Constitution, and they had to be read into the Constitution uh, through, the, through the right to privacy. And I would argue you could do the same thing with dignity. You could, go, you could say that through the various constitutional amendments, there is an equal penumbral right of a right to human dignity. And dignity is being shattered uh, when we allow the First Amendment to be weaponized in this way. Now, child pornography is not protected. Uh, that's because it's assumed that adults engaging in pornographic activity uh, know what they're doing, whereas children have to be protected. Yeah, I would still argue that there it fits more into the category of obscenity than it is to protect the children. You know, the standards now, are not, again, the standards. No, go ahead. No, do you no, finish your thought? No, no, I was just going to say that I, I, I think this is a consistent theme that we're interested in, you know, we're not necessarily interested in the, the underlying safety of the individuals who we're trying to protect. We're really just interested in material harm. So obscenity, you know, and pornography can be distinguished by looking at child pornography as being beyond the pale and clearly in the category of obscenity rather than pornography. But let me tell you, there's a recent Supreme Court case, United States versus Stevens, that had to do with making films. I think they're called snuff films, films of killing dogs, animals. And there was uh, a, 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 there, there's apparently a market for this. And the question is, uh, this was raised as if this violates the First Amendment right to make movies of this sort. And the Supreme Court ultimately, in Stevens, ruled in favor of those who make the movies and not the dogs. Because the, making the movie is an act of expression. Again, we see this, look, my favorite and most despicable anecdote is Snyder versus Phelps. I talk about it a lot in the book. You may remember, not long ago, 10 or 15 years ago, 10, I suspect, uh, there's a church group in Kansas, the Westboro Baptist Church. They are opposed to homosexuals serving in the military. The way they oppose this, they don't write op-eds, they don't write things, treatises, they don't have uh, intelligent conversations about why they think it's wrong to allow uh, homosexuals to serve in the military. Instead, they protest at military funerals around the United States. They get a permit to do so, and they, do so, and they hold up uh, banners and posters that say things like, God hates fags, God hates you, thank God for 9-11. This is what they do. The Supreme Court, the, the father of this one Marine, 
basically saying my, the right to bury my son, who served two tours of duty on behalf of this country, was ruined by this church group. He sued them in civil court for the in- intentional infliction of emotional distress. And despite what I said to you before, Leonard, he won. He won. The jury came back and said, this is beyond the pale. They gave him several million dollars in damages. It was ultimately overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States by a vote of eight to one. Only Justice Alito was the dissent, dissenting judges. And Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority, said, hey, look, I get it. This is really offensive, but this is what the First Amendment protects. And you know what I think, Leonard? If you ask George Washington, who was the leader of the colonial army and was a general and was obviously sympathetic to those who serve America in combat, that this is what the First Amendment was intended to protect, he would just throw up. There is no way the Founding Fathers believed that Snyder versus Phelps is an example of freedom of speech. I'm speaking with Thane Rosenbaum about his book, Saving Free Speech from Itself, on today's London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, the First Amendment covers religion, and this past Sunday, the Reverend Rodney Howard Brown was arrested in Florida because he had ignored pleas from lawyers from the sheriff's office and local government to cancel two services at his megachurch. His defense is that the First Amendment protected him from having to follow the order to cancel the services. Yes, of course. And, and let me just tell you, he wouldn't have said that had he not been watching things like Snyder versus Phelps, right? You know, he probably said, well, look, if you could be a church group and protest at military funerals, why can't I have my church open? Uh, the difference is he's not going to win here. Thanks. I, I, he, he can't win on a First Amendment reason. And the reason for it is because this is something that President Trump has been talking about for years. It sort of worked for him to some degree, which is that the states have police power to, uh, under the Constitution to regulate and create general welfare and safety. And we are in the middle of a pandemic. And this is something about the general welfare to secure uh, the health and safety of American citizens. So in this one instance, I would be shocked if his First Amendment challenge prevailed. And the only reason is because of COVID-19. In any other respect, he would be right. The federal government can't shut me down. I have a First Amendment right to both speak and to exercise my right to religion. It's only this national catastrophe, a national emergency, that would present the necessary police powers and the constitutional authority under, say, the Commerce Clause that says, look, the president can step in, exercise his emergency powers, and put a stop to large gatherings, even large gatherings in a church. You mentioned earlier that uh, the world has changed a lot since the Founding Fathers came up with these, the, their vision. Uh, has cyberbullying and the ability to express oneself anonymously through the Internet affected the concept of what should be considered free speech? Is Twitter the modern-day equivalent of the public square, uh, or is it, can it be something angrier and more mob-like? Well, I would argue it's anger and more mob-like. Uh, <clears throat> again, European democracies, Leonard, they don't put up with it. They just don't. 
they have very stringent requirements when it comes to social media and search engines. And Google and Facebook are held to very, very different standards. In the United States, cyberbullying, we see uh, uh, the recruitment of terrorists uh, through the Internet, instructional bomb-making videos on YouTube. The Europeans would never tolerate this. The Sarnayev brothers, remember the two brothers that were the bombers for us in the Boston Marathon, they learned how to make a bomb in their kitchen by watching YouTube. If they were living in Germany, they couldn't. Um, so we are seeing another abuse of free speech, another abuse of this premise of unregulated, unfettered, untrammeled rights to expression. Uh, this is exactly what Mark Zuckerberg believes. When Mark Zuckerberg was asked why he doesn't take down uh, Nazi websites or Nazi uh, uh, Facebook accounts, he said, I was shocked. I thought it must be, this is an example of the problems of not finishing college. He didn't finish college because this is his answer. He said, well, we don't punish people for simply getting their facts wrong. He thinks the Nazis just don't have their facts right. He doesn't realize that the Nazis have their facts right. They're, they're, it's not like they need to read more books. They know exactly what they want to do. Um, but that we have, a, again, a very open society uh, when it comes to what we permit even on the Internet. And, yes, I would argue that it's time, finally, to take a much more critical look at the Internet and to have some governmental regulation for the purposes of protecting people and marginalized groups from actual physical and emotional harm. Now, a number of comics, uh, Bill Maher and uh, Jerry Seinfeld and others, have uh, complained about uh, political correctness. Um, why are a refusal to limit any kind of free speech while not tolerating politically incorrect speech happening at the same time. Is there a connection between the two? Yeah, there's two worlds, Leonard. There's the world outside the, the college campus, which I pointed out is hypocritical, because there are many examples where we do punish people for speaking their minds, and we don't give them the benefit of the doubt that they have a free speech right. We punish them. So we, there are many examples outside of the context of the traditional First Amendment guidelines that only deal with the government obstruction of your speech, but just our own interaction. <clears throat> and then there's the world of the college campus with safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings, coddling of students, protecting students from anything that might upset their feelings or their sense of safety. And so comedians have stopped appearing on campus because the PC police has complained that they're not allowed, their act is filled with insults, uh, stereotypes. Uh, think about these comics who Bill Maher, Chris Rock, you know, this is how they make their living, but it, outside the universe, inside the university, this would all be part of the category of cancellation culture. We don't allow any ideas that we don't agree with. We don't want to debate them. We don't want to consider them. We don't want to try to hold two ideas in different hands and make fundamental distinctions between them. We, we simply want our biases confirmed, our, our, our ideas validated. And if anything comes on campus that challenges us, we will we'll shout it down. So your point about Berkeley is an incredible irony 
because the birthplace of the free speech movement has been the one that's been most active in canceling speeches, disinviting speakers, and drowning out and shouting down speakers. We don't have much time left, but I just wanted to address one other thing. Alex Jones and James Fetzer were recently lost court cases, have to pay major fines for things that they said about Sandy Hook and uh, whether the, 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 that was actual, an actual event. And I'm wondering about Dennis Prager, the founder of the right-wing propaganda outlet Prager University. Does he have a First Amendment right to lie about climate change and deny that straight people get HIV? Well, here, this is what we're hoping, or this is what my book is about. It's really about this idea of really putting, this, putting the reins on free speech and saying quality matters. Not everything out of an, a mouth of a speaker is an opinion that is based in ideas, based in science. The founding fathers believed in free speech, and this really answers your question, because they thought that free speech would make us better informed citizens, better decision makers, and would encourage us to engage in, in democratic deliberation, to participate in our democracy. That's what it's for. And none of the things that you just listed, that's what the reason why they shouldn't be protected is because we are, if, if it's not a step to the truth, if it doesn't, if it's not based in scientific inquiry, if it's not something that is there for the actual public benefit and also to enhance citizenship rather than to defile citizenship and deprive it, it shouldn't be given First Amendment consideration. Now, when it comes to civil cases, Zane, like I got to leave it there. Question. I'm sorry. Okay. Zane Rosenbaum's book, Enjoyed Saving it, Free Speech from Itself, published by Fig Tree Books. And Zane, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a real Always pleasure. Enjoy hearing you. Thank you, Leonard. And, uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed it. My special thanks to uh, Deborah Freeman, who, who uh, produced that segment. Uh, but also to uh, Reggie Johnson, uh, who uh, had, to, had to come into the studio. After all, we are uh, staying at home right now uh, because of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, Reggie and uh, some of the other WBAI operations staff continue to show up at the station to bring you this program and all the shows that you've come to rely on during this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Stay safe out there, and we hope that you'll join us tomorrow when former nightclub promoter and owner Peter Gadian will discuss his book, The Club King, My Rise, Reign, and Fall in New York Nightlife. We'll see you then.